So in the spirit of today's episode, I thought I would share how I got my very first set of Linux CDs. Oh, please do. It was a very special edition of Red Hat 5.1 Manhattan. It had been released in May of 1998. It shipped with Linux 2.03. Whoa, that's wow. a that's an old one. Yeah, it, it came with also like a separate application CD, which was totally unclear to me what you were supposed to do with. And I think on that CD, it had like Netscape, maybe Star Office, which was an open office mm-hmm. precursor. Um, and then there was also like this experimental pre-release of GNOME 1.0 wow. that you could in- install on there. <laughs> but what was crazy is who gave it to me. Uh, it was a family member who worked at Microsoft. And this was before they had, because this was the late 90s. This is before they had formalized their internal Linux division. But what had started happening, and my the family member was part of this movement, a group of interested geeks inside Microsoft in like 96, 97, 98 started really investigating Linux. And so they were like stacking Linux CDs and copying Linux CDs and deploying Linux and comparing it to Windows and trying to figure out what this Windows thing was. And he'd just gotten done with a round of that. So he brought me over a binder that had several different versions of Red Hat in it. I, I want to say SUSE, but it was like a, a copied version of SUSE, not like the official SUSE disk back in the day. It was just packed full of this stuff that they had been running through the tests to compare, see how, see what, how it compared to Windows at the time. And he's like, okay, I'm kind of done with it. I don't really need this. Would you like this stuff? You know, back then I was on dial-up. So to actually have all these Linux CDs? Yeah, that's a great way to get started. Yeah. You might say, Wes, I was an early distro hopper. Friends, and welcome into your mostly Linux weekly talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Well, coming up on the show this week, we've all been running Windows. We had three primary objectives that we set out to accomplish, but you know us, we couldn't stop there. So we'll share our thoughts on the whole thing. What, what was nice to see improved and what still needs a lot of work. We'll touch on all of that. Then we'll round it out with some picks, some boosts, some feedback, a special unboxing and a lot more. So before we get into that, let's say good morning to our friends over at Tailscale. Tailscale. It's a mesh VPN protected by WireGuard. 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 Yeah, that's right. It builds out a mesh network in seconds. You can put it on up to 100 machines when you go to tailscale.com slash Linux Unplugged. 100 devices for free, not a limited time trial. It's a great way to support the show and get yourself some private networking. Tailscale.com slash Linux Unplugged. And before we get into it, Let's say time-appropriate greetings to our mumble room. Hello, virtual lug. Hello, hello, Chris. Hello, 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 Wes, and hello, Brent. Oh, hello, gang. Hello, everybody, and hello up there in the quiet listening. Nice to have you on board too. So let's get into Windows 11. I think this is maybe my second, if not my first, experience with Windows 11. I feel like maybe we gave it a quick go when we right. first heard they were kind of you know going with a new, a new style. Inspired by some Linuxy things. For both of us, maybe it was when WSL two came out, but that might have been Windows ten, Wes. That might have been just a later version of Windows ten. This might have been a, this might be our first Windows eleven. 
And uh, it shows. And it's funny for me because I used to make my living supporting a lot of Windows systems. A lot of the client stuff was always on Windows. And, you know, I, I've rebuilt many a Windows boxes. So I went into this thinking, this should be no problem. I've got this. Uh, but we'll see how that went. Brent, I'm curious. I've been waiting to ask you all week. <laughs> I assume you got it installed, but I just kind of want to know how the install process went. So I thought maybe we'd talk about how it went for each of us getting Windows actually working on our existing gear. And then we'll get into our three objectives and our experiences. So Brentley, how was the Windows install? Yeah, I really hesitated with this one, but I decided to install it on the new framework that Nextcloud got for me. Ooh, Right on the new hardware. I hesitated not because I didn't think the hardware could do it, but because I wasn't sure I wanted to taint the hardware with, you know, the knowledge <laughs> of having done this. Yeah. <laughs> like it might be like sticking around and like your I don't Uf- know what EFI boot menu yeah, or something knows, gross. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. But then I figured, uh, actually the framework, I think they offer a version that has Windows installed. So I figured, well, it's probably well, yeah. pretty well supported. So uh, I did throw it on there. Uh, I used Ventoy, actually. Don't, like, think lesser of me, but this is the first time I actually use Ventoy. And uh, it worked perfectly fine with the... What? Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Well, I've been avoiding it because every time someone talks about it and they're like, oh, yeah, this thing's great, and they plug it in, and then it just doesn't work. Like, when I got the framework at our meetup in, in Berlin, uh, the same thing happened. Plugged it in, and then it just didn't didn't work. But I figure, what the heck? I mean, why not layer multiple experiences on top of each other, right? Who, what can go wrong? Yeah. But it went right, and it totally worked. So uh, Ventoy was just kind of like a checkmark in the in the whole process, which is good. I think, Wes, you had some fancier things around there. I don't know if you actually went down that road, but maybe we'll hear about that. It was rough in, like, the most beautiful way. It's like they make it really pretty, the install, like, dialogues and everything, but... I had these bizarre scroll bars in different places and stuff because this monitor is like a four by three or whatever. And it's, I don't think what they thought would might be a standard. So it was like really beautiful and then just broken everywhere all at the same time. But I did eventually get through it um, after about seven reboots during the process. Cause you know, there were four during the installation, two for updates immediately before I could do anything. And then, uh, then I forgot, like, I was trying to scroll around and I couldn't actually do any scrolling because I forgot I need, like, drivers. So luckily for the framework, those were super easy to find. Just went to their website and downloaded, I don't know, the whole thing and uh, installed those and everything seems to be working. I have zero complaints around that. Did you install those drivers, like, later on or did you actually try to get them in the install process? Ooh, yeah. No, I did them later on because I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, it, it was able to progress through the entire installation process without requiring drivers. And then I was able to add the framework drivers on top of that just to add some, you know, extra features and such. But you had to go download those from the framework website. They didn't come via Windows update. No, uh, I did not see any automatic detection or uh, suggestions that I should do that. But, you know, from my Windows history, I knew that was a thing. So I just did it myself. So you had a pretty smooth install experience. Ventoy worked for you. You got the drivers going. But you said there was some pain in there. Well, one of the biggest pain points for me was when it asks you to log in with your Windows account, <laughs> which I was like, I don't have one. Oh, wait. I th- think I have a Hotmail account from like when I was ago. a teenager 100 years ago. <laughs> oh. And sure enough, in my password manager... <laughs> 
So I, uh, because there's no way of getting around that that's obvious in the installer. It seems like a must have. So I attempted to log in with this absolutely ancient account, claimed that the password had been expired by, I don't know, sure, yeah. probably for whatever reason. So it never actually logged in via that account, but then it just got past the screen. So it's like I didn't actually log in, but I just, because they never thought that was a flow that they should think about, because I'm, of course, doing something strange, uh, it just went past. So. Maybe they're just happy enough that, you know, uh, all right, well, you have an account. Oh, yeah. You know who you are. Or maybe it's like if this process fails, then we just bail out quick to get them going. Mm-hmm. Is this Windows Home or Pro that you're doing? Uh, this one, I looked at the giant list of offerings, and I I actually don't remember. I think it was Pro. Yeah, I think it's yeah. Pro. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it doesn't I, sound like you're ready for pro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked at what it offers and I was like, I probably don't need that, but I think I'll download it anyways. <laughs> uh, there are some things in pro that are nice to have. Uh, remote desktop su- support is extensive in pro. Uh, BitLocker is not in the home, but it is in pro. And there's things like Hyper-V that are in pro that are not in the home edition. So there's some nice perks to getting pro over the home edition. Now, Wes... Uh, I know you did a standard installation, but then I think you also took the route of like, hey, if I was going to keep this and maybe reproduce this and do it my way. Oh, yeah. Okay, so tell me how your experience went and tell us the hardware you put it on. Oh, yeah. Well, I just put it on this uh, ThinkPad uh, T480 here, which I've been using kind of as the main test laptop for the show. Works great with Linux distros. It's been around for a bit, so you know the hardware support tends to be pretty good. I want to know if you... uh threw it on a partition alongside other Linux installs or oh. you just did a complete wipe? Yeah. Oh, I didn't do a complete wipe. No, I mean, there's too many other, you know, there's too many fun st- fun distros on here to do that. That was a tricky thing. It's like I wanted to put this on like legitimate real hardware to give it a go. But I don't want to sacrifice my daily drivers either. I had to ba- I had to balance that myself. So I think this is a good machine because you really know how this thing performs. You've tested a ton of stuff on it. Yeah, and it's got like a, I don't know, a terabyte or two in here. So it's easy enough to sort of just like pick a partition that's bigger than it needs to be. I only gave Windows 50 or 60 gigs anyway because I'm not planning to live here forever, right? Um, yeah, so I resized it. Uh, and then I thought, well, the Windows installer uh, is no fun. It's still like a Windows PE environment. It's not very fancy. I mean, they've put some more gloss on parts of it, but all the old part junk is still underneath there. And, you know, you can't browse the web while you're installing like you can on right. any decent Linux installer. Yeah. So I went the route of passing my whole disk, even though I was booted on it, which is a little risky, uh, into my virtual machine so I could install Windows on the real hardware but from a Linux distro. Oh, I love it. So you <laughs> essentially are using like a some sort of like QMU front end or something. Yep, but just you're, QMU, KBM. But instead of like a cow file, you're putting it to the physical I disk. just give it right to the you know, dev slash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Windows doesn't freak out about like all of a sudden it's in a VM one minute and then the next minute it's on physical hardware? We'll get to that. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Um, okay, so... Then, just to make it even more, you know, unusual, because someone's got to do something weird on the show, right? (laughs) This is great so far. I'm curious if either of you have ever done it this way. And back when I used to use Windows more, you know, when there was less Linux compatibility, when I was just less good at using Linux, um, this is how I ended up doing it when I wanted to do kind of weird Windows installs or try to make things work. Uh, Okay, so you boot into the installer. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do anything. You might want to go get your keyboard layout configured. We'll touch on that too. Uh, But you just do shift F10. Yeah. And that'll pop up a command prompt. Yes. Uh, so then, first things first, since I was doing this in a VM, I, I, my VM default setup uses Vert.io, which I wouldn't have to do, but that it, you know, it's the faster option. 
so I needed drivers. Yeah. But thankfully, uh, Red Hat and Fedora provide these drivers. Windows so, drivers. Windows drivers, yes, exactly. Uh, so download the ISO, which you can just go get really easily. Pop that into QEMU so it sees it. I figured, since I was already doing this on the command line, let's take this to the max. No GUI install here. So uh, there's a program called DRV Load. So you go, uh, you know, you do CD into your mounted ISO, go find your INF files, and then use DRV Load to load that. And that just worked. It's great. Um, pop that in, says loads the driver. Uh, there's like two of them in there you can do. Uh, then you open up Disk Part, which is the Windows command line disk partitioning utility, which it's not like it's quite as low level and it doesn't show you all the little bits that something like FDisk does, but it's actually quite pleasant to use on the command line. Uh, I've used it a, a fair bit in the past, but it'd been a little while. Um, but the commands are like pretty straightforward. You get to just, you know, you choose your disks, it shows you the partitions, it shows you the volumes. So I, uh, I'd already partitioned things via Gparted in Linux just to make the space available, but I left it raw and unformatted. Smart, so, smart. Um, so you could use Gparted in Linux, your preferred environment, your preferred tool. And then, yeah, because the Windows Partitioner, just as a side note, mm -hmm. I'm a dummy. I admit <laughs> it. But I accidentally deleted my boot USB drive partition Whoops. one time because I was just going through like, oh, that's a partition. Clear that. That's a partition. Clear that. Oh, crap. That was a different disk. So that's much better approach is using Gpart. It's something you're familiar with. Yeah, I used to do that when I do Bolt 2. You know, it's like use the Linux installer, get everything formatted. Yeah. And then you can just tell Windows like, I got a slot for you already. Um, so go in there, uh, format things with, you know, NTFS. Uh, and then one nice part about the modern era and UEFI is I think like Windows actually plays, it's like, it's an easier environment because there's no like crazy magic stuff at the front of the disk bootloader that you got to play with, right? It's it's a FAT32 partition that's just got files on it. And sure, it might make itself the new default in like your, but you can just switch that back. It's easy to do. And most BIOSes these days, like, you know, you can go and choose a native UEFI switcher. So even if Windows installs and makes itself the default, you can just hit F11 or whatever at the boot and still get back to your Linux without having to worry that you got to get a USB to repair That's things. That's so much nicer than it used to be. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and I didn't have to do anything to fuss with the rest of it. I only had to make the one partition for Windows because I was reusing the same UEFI yeah, partition I had. Absolutely. Uh, so then, this is the fun bit, uh, you use a tool called DISM uh, and you apply the image that's contained on the install CD. So if you go look on that like ISO that you put on there, there's like a sources folder. Mm -hmm. uh, and in there, there's an install.wim, or in this case, it was an install.esd file, but both work. And then it's got a bunch of different options there. As you see in the GUI installer, it's got like home and pro and education and all these different versions. And those are at different indexes in the command line version. So oh. you can like use a thing to list all the options and all the indexes in there. And then when you apply an image, you give it a command line flag that says like, hey, I want index two. And that'll pick like pro. The pro image. Home. Yeah. Interesting. So that's really what the installer is doing. Yeah. When you choose it in that list, when you're choosing which version of Windows, you're really just kind of executing that on the back end, which picks that index. Yeah. And then so this just like, it's just, it's an image. It just extracts the image onto your C drive. So it just writes out, you get all this, the Windows and System 32 and all the wonderful stuff you need on a C drive to make it Windows. And then from there, you just need to set up the bootloader. That's pretty easy too. There's a command called BCD boot. Uh, and Windows has this BCD file, which is like a registry file that contains all the settings for the different like the windows bootloader so it knows how to get into the different windows because you can have you know it can do multiple versions of windows it's actually pretty fancy these days uh but you run bcd boot and you're off to the races you give it hmm. a reboot now here you could use the registry editor and um bypass that uh windows or microsoft account thing 
Uh, but there's another way if you don't want to fuss with it during the installer, then just go ahead and reboot. Uh, as Brent experienced, you'll pop back up into Windows into the installer and you get that first welcome screen, the uh, OOBE or out-of-box experience, as they call it in the uh, Windows parlance. Even the file name is so corporate. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Uh, You probably want to restrict network access. So just like don't sign in. Or for me in the virtual machine, I just, you know, disabled networking, didn't have a nick-nick at all. Uh, And then do Shift F10. And in that environment, it'll also pop up a command prompt. Uh, And then you go into the System32 folder and you run a command that's called OOBE slash bypass nro uh and that'll just like that'll modify your registry and then reboot and then you'll b- bounce back into the out-of-box experience again but this time if you don't have networking enabled when you get to that screen it'll give you the option to continue with a local account or it's like a with a limited setup or something yeah like okay that. yeah and so uh from there you don't need to sign in with any account unless you make a local admin account and you've got Windows installed. Like the good old way you used to log into Windows. That's a nice little roundabout trick to bypass that. I thought my method was a little easier, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, two more, two little bits that were slightly more complicated. I realized I could partway go, go through the installer and, like, get my keyboard configured correctly. Because by default, and we were using, like, an all-in-one ISO to, to test with, the uh, backslash was showing up as a as a pound symbol, and that wasn't going to work because I was on the Windows command line and there's right. a lot of backslashes involved. <laughs> yeah. So I got to figure out how to use the Windows PE util to set the keyboard layout on the command line. Oh. Uh, so that was fun. And then also I realized that loading that driver in the PE install environment didn't get it onto the C drive. So then you have to do, once you've got the C drive extracted, you can use um, PNP util. Or actually, no, you might be able to do that, but I think that's for online systems. You can use the DISM tool to add a driver to the extracted image. So you still have to modify the extracted image when you're all done too. Yes. Okay. Good thing to know. So a few little bits in there. If you if your system has like support and you weren't trying to do this in a virtual machine with Vert yeah. IO drivers, you wouldn't need to bother yeah. with that stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so that got me Windows installed. Uh-huh. But at this point, it's in the virtual machine, but oh, running off right. my real disk. Right. So then I used SysPrep which has a generalize option. Still around, old sysprep. Old sysprep, Man, yeah. I used the hell out of that back in the day. Uh, and then I rebooted my laptop, and it had added, the you know, my UEFI system saw that there was a Windows boot manager now, selected that, and a uh, couple more reboots later as it, you know, figured out what the new hardware was and, like, figured out how to make that work. <laughs> There's a lot of reboots. <laughs> I got real Windows running on my laptop. And um, do you know, would it complain if you switched between them about, like, you have to reactivate... That kind of stuff. I know Windows is a little bit better about that now. No, I mean, yeah, you might need to in some circumstances, but for the most part, this has just been working. Oh, man, Wes. That's a pretty slick way. I think it's kind of ironic, though, that you definitely did more command line setup to get Windows installed than you would for any modern Linux, Ubuntu, or Fedora install. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly more like doing it like an Arch or a Gentoo yeah. way than anything else. Yeah, really. Um, so... I did not have the luck with hardware that you boys did, and I just thought this was going to be a slam dunk um, because, you know, I'm thinking Windows 11. What do I know about Windows 11? Well, I know it kind of has some modern hardware requirements compared to previous versions of Windows, and I know the adoption's kind of low because of that. So I'm going to bite the bullet and really try this thing, and I'm going to put it on my Dev 1 because that's kind of, the you know, the most modern system I have. It's a pretty new one. I mean, it seems like it would be well-supported by Windows, yeah. right? They ship it a version with it, right? Right. There's, there's an HP Pro version laptop that's designed for Windows. So um, booted up the old Windows USB all-in-one ISO off of a thumb drive and doesn't see my disk, doesn't see the disk in the Dev 1. Well, of course, I go to HP's site. There's no drivers for Windows for the Dev 1 because it's a Linux laptop. Uh. So a little Googling and barting and, 
and duck ducking later, I I kind of nailed down which HP model the Dev One was forked from, and so I go to the support page for that model, and I down I I, I expand the drivers list and I see drivers for all kinds of things, stuff I didn't even know they made drivers for. But I don't see anything that says disk controller or SATA controller. But I do see chipset driver and I do see HP enablement driver. Mm. But of course, I download them and they're at EXEs. Thankfully, Wine runs them and they self-extract just fine. So I copy them over to like an extended fat USB thumb drive, pop them in the Dev1 in the Windows installer. And for the life of me, it cannot find any drivers anywhere in that mess, at least for nothing that it needed. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I burned a day trying to oh, get no. this working. And it just never, I never got it working on the Dev 1. And what I came to, and I'm not exactly sure if this is right or not, but what I came to is I need to use the HP Image Assistant to generate the Windows installer, which will lay in the drivers. And that's how they put the, those drivers in. That's how they distribute those drivers. But in order to download the HP Image Assistant, you need to have a, an HP product with a valid serial number that has a valid Windows license. So you couldn't go use like another Windows install somewhere to set uh. seemingly. So at that point, I pivoted. I just thought, let's try it on a different piece of hardware. Let's try it on my old Sputnik XPS 13. This is the OG Sputnik. It's been around for a long time. Uh, it's like a fifth gen i7 around 2.2 gigahertz, eight gigs of built-in RAM. There's no upgrading that sucker at all. It's got a touchscreen, and for some reason. It's still selling for like eight ninety nine on Amazon. I couldn't explain to you why, but it is. It's got a nice, you know. It's it's the very very first like official Sputnik, and um, I happen to buy mine. I happen to buy the Windows edition, which will which will be relevant later. And so uh, then I put Linux on it, and sure enough, it uh, it does boot, and then it crashed. The Windows installer, the Windows eleven would just lock up. The Windows wow. eleven installer would lock up. And I couldn't get it past the initial boot where it would just have a flashing cursor. And I remembered Brentley saying he tried Ventoy, and Ventoy had worked for him. So I thought, all right, well, I'll give Ventoy a try. So I slapped the Windows 11 ISO on Ventoy. I popped that in the Dev 1. I boot it up. I see it on the list. I select Windows 11. It starts to boot up. gets a little bit further. And then flashing cursor. Flashing cursor. Oh. Well, I saw there was this other option in there. They have this kind of whim boot mode. They say only use this if normal boot fails. And I think, well... Normal boot failed. So I reboot again, go into Ventoy, select Windows 11, but now I choose this WIM boot mode. And sure enough, it worked. Yeah, so that's a neat thing about Ventoy is you can actually boot into VHD or WIM files. And on the installer, there's the install.wim, which has like the stuff that can be the final system. But there's also a boot.wim, which has like the, the system stuff for the PE environment. So uh -huh. I imagine it's finding that boot.wim and using that to get the installer started. Well, sure enough, it's clever because it worked. And... Probably one of the reasons why the installer was having a little trouble is it's not really meant for this hardware. And um, even the most basic animations they put in that onboarding screen are like eight frames per second on this laptop. It's like I'm waiting to get my input in until the animation is done, and I'm just sitting there. That's worse than my virtual machine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there was like two reboots during the actual main install. And then after I got it installed and I logged into my Microsoft account, which I decided I'd try with this. <laughs> Oh, you did it that well. <laughs> yeah, I decided I'd give that a go. Um, oh my god! It like if if you're a regular user and you're just installing Windows, you would you would end up just following their default workflow, which is they want to restore a backup from a previous machine. Well, 
Like last time we tried this. I mean, that is kind of a nice feature if you're just like a, you know, person, a not, you know, a normal person yeah. using computers and like, here's the problem. A new machine. Is that it, it has no taste. It has no sense. It wanted to, re- it, it, it was essentially forcing upon me through the UI oh. a restore of a PC that was a test throwaway machine when you and I did our WSL test in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> so did you try it? No, because like, <laughs> It'd be like, a, it's like a, from a Windows 10 install with like, <laughs> yeah. God, like, and like you have to like really click through an anti-pattern UI to avoid this crazy ass recovery from a machine that's totally out of date. Like it's, it, it really, and then after I get over that mountain, it tried to get me to download and install some ripoff of KDE Connect and then pair it with my, with my laptop right then and there. Like stop. <laughs> I'm like, bro, I'm trying to get to my desktop. And it's like, no, go get our app, man. It's cool. And then you scan this QR code. I'm like, bro. <laughs> Go away. So I get past that. And then it's like, hey, fam, you want Office 365? Oh, we got sure a great deal for you. And I'm like, no, <laughs> stop. And then it's like, okay, all right. All right. You, you, so you, you, you don't you don't want to pair with our app. You, you don't want to subscribe to Office 365, but I bet you really want 100 gig more cloud storage, right? <laughs> you really want that. We'll give you a great deal on 100 gig more cloud storage right now. We can integrate into your desktop. It's the oh, best thing ever. That. And I'm just like, this is three upsells in a row. And you know, these are different fiefdoms inside Microsoft that all have been battling and advocating for getting access on this onboarding screen for years. And so it starts with one product and then another product and then another product. And for Windows 12, it's going to be like four upsell screens <laughs> before you get there. I mean, it's really an intense process. And then once you actually get the system installed, uh, wow, like the updating takes forever. The reboots are constant. And at one point when it was like at the shutdown screen and installing updates and just spinning, I, I was sitting for a half hour and I literally Googled, what do I do if Windows freezes at the shutdown screen installing updates? Like, yeah. how, how how bad am I going to bone this thing if I have to hard reset? And so it's like, it says, it's like, if the process hangs for more than six hours, you should consider rebooting. <laughs> six hours? Doesn't that tell you something? I'm like, I'm sitting here at 30 minutes thinking it's locked up. So I just walked away and made lunch and then I came back and it rebooted itself. You know, so then once I got through all those hurdles, I was on the XPS 13 and I discovered somehow, even though this thing is from the very beginning of the Sputnik program, maybe Windows Vista era, maybe, maybe Windows 7, maybe, somehow the Microsoft installer matched up my Dell serial number with a license and fully activated the thing. I never had to, I never had to select an addition, even though we were using the all-in-one ISO on the XPS. All the other systems I tried it on, like the VMs and yeah. the Dev wow. 1, I always had to select the addition. What happened over there? Not on the XPS 13. It just automatically selected Windows Home hmm. for me and activated it, which I think maybe is why I got all the upsells and all that stuff, because it's like the Home edition. And you did log in. I was going to say, I know it's funny logging in with a local account because there's just like a bunch of stuff like in the spot where the old, like, you know, they've moved where the Windows uh, icon is now. And the old, that spot, there's now like the the uh, widgets. Yeah. But you have to be signed in to get the widgets. So <laughs> there's just nothing there. Linode.com slash unplugged. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit and go check out the exciting news our hosting provider for three years plus now has. They are now part of Akamai, the Akamai. And they're keeping all of the tools that we love, like the cloud manager, the API, and the command line client, all that stuff that we've used and told you about that deploys and scales in the cloud at great prices. That stuff's sticking around, but now it's combined with Akamai's power and global reach. They are the premier network, 
and they're expanding their services to offer us more cloud computing resources and tools while still giving us that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution that's worked for a small business like JB, individuals in our audiences, and large enterprises, very large. In fact, some of the biggest names you've heard run on Lino. The infrastructure is that good, and it scales to what you need. We've brought systems from the ground up up to massive monsters, and then we've scaled them back down as we've optimized the server. I think it's a pretty awesome experience. It's why we've talked about it. It's why we run everything here, and it's why so many people in our audience absolutely love it. So go try it out, get that $100, and support the show. Go experience the power of Linode now with Akamai. You just go to linode.com slash unplugged. That's how you learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help scale your applications, your projects, whatever it might be, from the cloud all the way to the very edge. It's pretty great stuff. And I want to give a personal plug for their S3-compatible object storage. Using that all the time. You'll love it. Linode.com slash unplugged. The timing on this challenge is kind of funny. I saw this morning that Microsoft has launched a new web app store for Windows. They've rebuilt the app store with a web version, I guess built from the ground up, to make it easier to find apps. I guess this is nice. Um, We did spend some time in the Windows store. So let's talk about our three main objectives that we had here. One was... Use the new Windows App Store. Use it to do some updates. Use it to install some stuff. Figure that out. The second objective was run some Docker containers because it's something we do really easily on Linux. Just try to do this on Linux. And then the third objective was try to connect to another Linux box on the network. You know, so a lot of times we're always talking about how can Linux access Windows systems? Well, what if you live in a Linux household and you got a rogue Windows box? How well can it integrate and connect to your Linux systems? We wanted to test... All those things there. Kind of round it out and then, you know, just sort of feel out the other stuff and, and get our impressions in there. So, Wes, did you get a chance to try out the Windows Store, even though you were using some local hacker account? So, actually, no. I'm going to be relying on you guys, um, I guess <laughs> I guess via proxy. Um, but I went the route of just trying to get everything I needed installed via Chocolatey. Oh, nice. Yeah, I almost did that, too, except for that stupid Windows Store part of it. Yeah. And how was the Chocolatey thing? Because that was something I really wanted to try and I didn't. Oh, it's been great. Kind of because, like, I started this install on the CLI. I figured, like, let's take this, you know, that's how I do my Linux system. Let's see how much I can do it on the Windows side. Um, It's been pleasant. You know, definitely when you click over to their site, um, by default, you land on their, like, sort of product version. So it's kind of like the Windows world, right? Like, there's a lot of proprietary stuff. By default, it's kind of like selling you on the, like, you can use Chocolatey with, like, your, you know, Ansible and all this other automation at scale for your Windows deployments, which is all great, I'm sure. Uh, but then you got to go find, there's like a community subdomain that has like the community stuff and actually has the list of all the packages. It has, even the install is kind of confusing because they've got like all the enterprise ways to get it automated and installed and like pr- provisioned and, you know, and I just, I just wanted like an EXE or an MSI to install. You know, it's a funny thing I've noticed over the years with these Windows apps that start out as a community thing and then they get popular enough that people start like ramming them into corporate scripts and then these companies figure out, oh, wait a minute, there's a bunch of money over here. And then their whole focus sort of pivots to enterprise. And it, it, it gets tricky. Like I, I've had that experience with some other Windows apps, too. So you you get Chocolatey installed. Can you install things like VLC and Firefox? You sure can. My Firefox is from that. Uh, Elements from that. Telegram's from that. Slack's from that. Uh, most of the stuff that I've actually installed, I've just been able to do right through Chocolatey. You, you got more stuff than I did. Element is not in the Windows Store. Yeah, Element Desktop, just right on the, yeah. Um, (laughs) Gamma points out there's also WinGet, which is that new sort of, I've been meaning to try that. I didn't get quite that far, but uh, Chocolatey's been a great experience. I just just got that installed, but I have not 
no 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 notes or experience on it, but uh, win get yeah. Brantley, what about you? Did you get a chance to kick those the uh, the tires on the Microsoft Store and install some apps? Yeah, my first reaction on day one uh, was to try to do everything the Windows way. Sure, and I knew you know our dear Drew told us about Chocolatey, or at least told me about it, and uh, I thought okay. That's here in the back pocket, but I'm going to try because this is, you know, trying to do the Windows way. I'm going to attempt that. So I dug right into the Windows store. At least one of us is honest. Uh, well, the honesty ends eventually. And so the Windows store actually was like, looks nice. Seems like you can find things. So I started looking up stuff. And yeah, sure enough, the first thing I wanted to install was uh, Slack because we use that internally here at JB just to... Uh, well, I wanted to get our show notes so I could write some notes down about the install process. That was really what I wanted to do because <laughs> I had a lot to say and I hadn't written now, it down yet. this is some dog fooding. And, uh, but I, I don't know. I guess I'm used to our dear Linux app stores that have so much information because you, you go to the Slack, you know, I, at least I was able to find it. So I click on there and it says release date 2014. And I was like, wait yeah. a second, that can't be the latest update, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I couldn't actually look up any version history like past versions or which what was the current version even and i tried and i tried i don't know maybe i'm missing something but i tried and i tried and i couldn't get anywhere so i have the same complaints it's like this i just i wanted to know like the most recent updates and some of the changes and it's just not really in there it's really minimal description some reviews and screenshots and something i'm used to doing in various app stores is just checking to make sure that uh, the provider is actually the project. So is this actually from Slack or is it some community edition? You know, if it is a community edition, maybe I have to go look it up and make sure that it's not just one guy and that it's some software trying to, I don't know, do some shady stuff on the back end. So I'm kind of used to that workflow. It's like just, so it's just like flat up <laughs> basically. Uh, but I knew, I knew hearing about the Windows store that it had a, history of having just some bad apps in there and some out of date stuff. So I was extra cautious and I actually wasn't able to get the information that I needed to make me feel more confident about it, but I installed Slack anyways, and it seemed to work. I think, I think the publisher information is at the bottom of the page. If you scroll all the way down, like where they also recommend other apps oh. past like the reviews and the requirements, I think they have like uh, the publisher info down there. Yeah, I did find that, and I. But anybody can write, you know, Slack Inc. or whatever it is. Uh, but they did have a contact button, so I thought, okay, if there's like proper contact info in here, maybe I can that can help me. But you click I on see. there, and there is no contact info. It just gives you the publisher <laughs> name, and that's it. And I did that for a few different packages. <laughs> so it's like, come on, guys. Um, but I installed Slack anyways via via that method, and I verified that it was on the newest version. You know, went to Slack's website, saw what the new version was, checked it out uh, on the install, and sure enough, it was the new version. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll keep trying this App Store thing. But I did notice some weird things. So I um, we'll talk about WSL in a bit. But in in the process of attempting to get WSL installed. I noticed that there were only like 75 ratings for WSL in the Windows App Store for me. Yet if you go to the online store that you were just mentioning, uh, it has like 911 ratings or something like that. It's like, why is there a <laughs> really? difference? And it yeah. turns out oh. that the App Store only shows you the ratings for your country. So my being here in Canada. Uh, uh, so You're a trendsetter up there in Canada. 
Yeah, but it was interesting because I was start then I started comparing certain applications both on the, you know, the web version and on the version I was seeing on my local install here and like the rating for the application itself like 5 star, 4 star or whatever. Those were different and also the like reviews were of different uh numbers. So I was like, <laughs> why aren't you show like the internet is so worldly, especially today. Why aren't you showing me just what everybody thinks, you know? So that was a weird strange experience. Yeah. That is a weird limitation. Like their opinions don't matter. Yeah. And why would the country matter for like most applications? I, don't I, uh, I had a pretty good experience with the Windows App Store. I had this odd thing. It happened. I could repeat it with Photoshop because I thought, let's try installing Photoshop from the App Store. That's a big one. And it is the boondockle you'd expect. What it really is doing in the background is just downloading the Creative Cloud installer. There's, I suppose there's really only so much you can get right, past right. there, right? Um, it's not. It's kind of outside of Microsoft's control. But what was weird is three out of the five times I would go to the Photoshop app listing, the install button just wouldn't be there. If I restarted the Windows Store service or rebooted, it would be there that time. But then if I went and installed a bunch of other apps and then went back to go install Photoshop, there would be no button. No get, no buy, nothing. Just where the button would be, nothing rendered in the UI. Is this why they needed to make a new app? Maybe. Uh, but then, like I said, I could get around it eventually and then discover that it's just loading the Creative Cloud installer. I also tried to install WSL from the App Store, and I clicked it, and it would spin, and I got one security prompt, one UAC prompt. I said yes, and then it would just go back to a get button. So I'd do it again, get the UAC prompt, say yes, and then it would just go back to a get button. <laughs> so I went to the command line and I did the WSL dash dash install or whatever it is. And it told me I need to go get a bunch of Windows features and check them and turn them on. And I'm thinking to myself, oh. why does WSL dash dash install not turn those Windows features on? Or why does the get button from the Windows store, like why even have that if I have to go do that first? I wonder if this, is this a consequence of you being on home? Because Oh, maybe. For me on Pro, like I just went to the command line, WSL dash dash install, ah. worked first thing out of the gate. I just checked while we were talking here. I'm also on Pro, and uh, I had the same experience as Chris. I tried to install it. What? Yeah, yeah, various ways. And I it took me like half an hour to go through all the different error codes. I'd get a new <laughs> error. Go look that up on the Windows documentation, which was... Thick. Oh, yeah. See, he's got to fight for his QA chief title here. <laughs> <laughs> and so it took me a while to get it working. And of course, like various uh, places suggested different things. And uh, the documentation said like, oh, yeah, just repeat step four. And I was like, there is no step four on this whole page. So I had to go. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it was a bit of a disaster. I eventually got it working, but it just felt like that was rough. Like they have an install button. It should just handle all that for you. Another thing that's kind of out of sight, Microsoft's control, but so Slack and Telegram and some of these things are there, but I could never get VLC ins to install from the store. That's another one where the button just didn't render for me. So I ended up having to go to VLC's website. I had to go to the Element Chat website to get that. So I still did. I wonder, there's probably 50, like 50. a fancier Windows, you know, it's like the MPV for Windows that yeah, we should that, be using yeah, instead. Or, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just, VLC, I know. Um, and some of those media players on Windows are just garbage, so I just wanted to avoid those. Uh, but so I, I, I think maybe eh, not fifty, seventy percent of the apps I installed came from the App Store. I think the app itself is well done. I think it's better built than it's definitely better built than Apple's desktop App Store for the Mac, um, and it's snappier and and fancier than something like GNOME Software, I suppose. I don't know if its fundamental features are any better than what GNOME Software does, but it's got you know more swooshes and lighter <laughs> right, and stuff. Yeah. 
Um, I thought it was what I what struck me about it. One last note on the store before we move on. When you open up the store, uh, it recommends TikTok. Uh, it recommends uh, Acrobat Reader. It recommends iTunes and Spotify and Netflix and WhatsApp. Microsoft's apps are in here, but it was surprising to see competitors' apps just so front and center. I mean, Spotify and iTunes lead multiple different features and categories. Um, so it's, I mean, I, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like they're really pushing too hard mm. on the scale like Apple does. Like Apple really pushes their stuff and Google does too. But Microsoft, like the top, like the first listed app is TikTok. Second is Adobe Reader. The, the third is Adobe Express. The fourth is Adobe Photoshop. Fifth is Adobe Access. I mean, they can just install it in the background. They don't need to put it in the store. Well, they do that. They do a lot more of that now. They did a lot of that, a lot of cleaning up the stuff they pre-install. A lot more junk comes along. I, I will say, just as you were talking there, I did get VLC installed via Chocolaty. So. Okay, yeah, that's the way to go. Did you guys notice the AI Hub category? Yes. Yeah, they have did, a did whole section in the store. Oh. Just quickly, a lot of it looked like junk to me. Oh, there's Moises, which uh, we use to, uh, on our drum challenge, listener Jeff and Alex and I to deconstruct songs. So at least there's something useful in there. Well, that's kind of cool. I did try another app store, which it doesn't sound like you guys tried. Oh. There's another app store? When I was doing research, I learned one of the major features for Windows 11 was the ability to run Android apps. And now these, you can't find through the Windows app store, but there's a partnership with Amazon. So if you install the Amazon app store, it installs some virtualization, like the Windows subsystem for Android, if you didn't know that was a thing. I couldn't really find any useful android applications in that store it was mostly <laughs> games so anything i wanted to run didn't exist but i was able to find plex uh so i was able to get plex up and running but then i needed a plex pass to actually watch anything using the android app so then i just gave up but what is the app launch experience like do you do you see much of the machinations of launching an android app or does it just pop up like an old windows app well i'm seeing it in the windows menu here like just the regular old menu so if i run this plex app here uh yeah starting windows subsystem for android and there's like a scrolly bar and it's still going now that i've run it and it takes a little while and this is a modern laptop but okay, now Plex is starting and uh, we're good. So it's definitely virtualized and shows it. I'm glad you tried that. That's something I should play around with. There's a lot to get into still. But let's talk about some of the things I think they're doing well since we just gave them a hard time for a few things. Uh, I really kind of like the tiling features. I like the way they've implemented the tiling stuff. You, If you hover over maximize, you get your options or you you drag and put the mouse in the right spot. You kind of get this drop over and it works. I think in general, honestly, if you, if we think about like the windows desktop as like a DE in the Linux land, I'd use this on Linux. If there was a Linux version, I might consider it for some machines. Like it's yeah. a pretty nice environment. You're right. If, if you're just talking like the windows management stuff, especially th- the new stuff, maybe not like some of the legacy yeah. bits, but right. like the new virtual desktops and yeah. the auto snapping. Um, it, it is nice. And, you know, the other thing they've done that kind of minimizes the UI is they're really just by default hiding a lot of the system tray icons. So you, you don't see those unless you go manually turn them on, and it's nicer that way. Off by default should be the way to go. I thought that that kind of stuff, it, it needs a little more power options. Like, I wanted to see, and this is not in there, something like Windows rules that Plasma has. Yeah. So every time I open Telegram, open it on the third virtual desktop and put it on this half of the screen. Every single time. Just do that. There's nothing built into Windows to do that. 
There's also, although there's tools, there's nothing built into Windows to just display down in the tray what desktop you're on. Mm. It's a nice little thing is, you know, like in, in Plasma, you can put on the little oh, yeah. little virtual uh, virtual desktop so you can select your desktop like, or you can do it with a GNOME extension. Something like that would be really nice so you can quickly see what desktop you're in and make it easy to swipe and you can configure the gestures so you can do the three-finger swipe between desktops. Yeah, that part's nice. It's really nice. I, I got to say, I really like that experience. What about you, Brent? Did you struggle with it? Did you find that pretty functional? Uh, I also had the similar like initial experience of thinking, yeah, this actually looks really nice. And the tiling especially caught my eye. I guess on Plasma, I'm so used to using the super key and then just uh, like my arrow keys to move windows around between you know the side of the monitor and tile it to a certain place. Yes. And that just worked by default here. Mm. So I didn't have to le- learn like a new shortcut or anything. It was super nice. So I just instantly moved to doing it that way. What I did notice about the hovering to um, tile certain windows is it works in most places, but in some applications like Slack and uh, the Docker desktop, for instance, it you're, you know you hover over that guy and it just doesn't do anything. So it must be using, I don't know, it's using something different that the tiling just doesn't play nicely with. And so it's not universal, but it's nice when it shows up. There's this not surprising feature because it, it, it's kind of same true for all desktops, but my God, was it true on Windows 11? What I discovered using virtual desktops is there's really no point to using virtual desktops on a low resource machine. Because mind you, I'm on an i I'm on a fifth gen i7. <laughs> I got eight gigs of fixed RAM. I actually got out of memory errors. I it I it really Windows 11 struggles with a few apps to perform with eight gigs of RAM and. Yeah. That was that was a little brutal. I have to be honest. In some in some periods, it's just trying to kind of maneuver and operate in that space. And so things like Explorer launching even can kind of be slow as the Chrome draw, draws in. And so I had to go in and kind of turn things down. And I was able to customize and I got rid of the widgets menu and I put the start menu back where it should be and was able to kind of make some of that work on a lower end system. But and I mean this with all honesty, it's just it's just the facts. This Sputnik machine has run Linux its entire life. Like, I never even booted Windows on it when it came. Mm-hmm. I immediately wiped it. And it had elementary OS on there before I reinstalled. And I put Windows on there. And it is clearly more performant under Linux for just about every task. I mean, launching applications, just using the system feels faster. There is a noticeable performance delta on older hardware between Windows 11 and even modern Linux. So I just thought that was pretty jarring because I didn't expect the machine to feel that slow because I've used that machine for years and it's never felt like that before. Uh, in our matrix, Tears Arm points out that I think technically maybe uh, your hardware isn't supported yeah. by Windows yeah. 11. Yeah, I get you get you get like some you get some notes like, well, you can join the Insider program, but just so you know, your hardware is not supported, so things could be extra breaky. <laughs> But I, in a way, I got to respect the fact that I was able to do it. You know, I appreciate that they just didn't say straight up, no, you can't use this machine. No, you can't join the Insider program. I wonder, there are, um, like, I think Ventoy has an option to disable sort of requirement checks. So I wonder if that happened yeah. or if um, your system was close enough that, there, that yeah, didn't come sure. to play. I'm not sure. I was surprised. I was surprised because I don't think there's like a TPM chip in there or anything like that. For contrast on this ThinkPad, I've been, I think Windows has been like very pleasant, super snappy. There's still little bits like updates, reboots, shutting down yeah. for some reason. It takes forever. Yeah. Um, but like once you're once it's up and going, all the window management, everything sort of like day to day, it's 
keeping up with the best of the Linux installs yeah. I've had, I think. That's what my expectation was because, honestly, a new Windows install tends to be pretty snappy. I mean, that's why people go through the trouble of reloading every now and then because <laughs> you do notice a difference. Yeah. And it usually performs pretty well. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, all right. So let's talk about co- uh, our two other objectives. Little, Maybe we pick up the pace here. Uh, did you get a chance, Wes, to try running a Docker container on Windows 11? I sure did, yeah. And kind of what's neat, I was looking at it, I guess um, since WSL came around, Docker Desktop can actually hook into WSL and use it as, and I think these days now it even uses it as its default background. So once you've got uh, WSL installed, Docker Desktop is kind of just like another way to interface to it. Um, I tried on the WSL side to get NixOS going, and there is a um, sort of like a build setup you can do. Uh, I need to play more with that, and I will. But uh, just to like not fuss with it so much, I tried figured I'd run a NixOS container uh, or a Nix container uh, via Docker Desktop, and yeah, worked just fine. Ran a, ran a couple different test containers and uh, worked just like you'd expect. Yeah. So it's a slam dunk with Docker Desktop to a degree. Like the UI for me is very thick. I find it to be a lot of application. They want me to sign up and all this kind of crap that I hate just so I can run a container on my machine. It just seems ridiculous. Nice thing there too. Uh, so like these days on the Docker website, yeah, you got it. Like they want you to like make an account and sign in to get the download for the Docker desktop app. Um, but you can, uh, with Chocolatey, you can install it that way and you can bypass Skip that part. The, yes. Yeah. Yep. That's definitely the way to do it. Um, but once I got it up on home, they have a, peculiar limitation that totally doesn't bother me but might bother some people is that you can only run linux containers on windows home you cannot run windows containers in order to run windows containers you need full hyper-v support and to have full hyper-v support you need to have hey don't do anything businessy like on this thing okay it's a home edition this is honestly if they and i hope they do one day if they dropped this crap this this product differentiation crap with windows i mean i'm fine with a windows client and a windows server but outside of that give me a break (laughs) But Docker Desktop, you know, it's fine. I got hedge docs up and going. I assume you're kind of familiar. You've used the Docker Desktop on the Mac side already. For like a hot minute. Yeah. You know. I first, though, and I think, Brent, you probably tried this route, too, so I'll let you talk about this. I first tried to get just Docker running inside Ubuntu or Arch in a WSL environment. Did you try this route, Brent? I did use Chocolatey, and I just went, uh, I don't know, Chocolatey install uh, Docker. And I figured that that would work well. So I guess, in a way, it's attempting to do what you're saying. Uh, and and I, I just couldn't get anywhere with that. Just so many run errors. Uh, so then I figured I would then use Chocolatey to install uh, the Docker desktop. And that did boot up and everything. And I agree with you about the interface. I just sat there for like many minutes trying to decide, like, where am I supposed to be going? Um, my, oh, man. The end goal I wanted was to get our website up and running like as mm. a developer environment because i figured well that's probably the most useful thing we should be trying right it didn't work very well for me it's still that's kind still of going. looping around saying preparing and i ran into they're like they have a button you know they have one for like containers and one for i don't know vms and images and stuff and there's one called create a dev environment which is you know it'll pull down a git repository for you and stuff like that which seems mm-hmm. useful and i figured that's what i'm trying to do uh, it does say there's a little beta tag beside that button. So I think I'm running into the, uh, you know, the, the Brent state here because I've found several instances where it just breaks and I haven't actually gotten anywhere. So I failed this challenge, I will say. Mm. I, I think the funny thing about Docker Desktop is like it's this whole, as you say, right, this whole GUI app. Um, but you really just install it to get Docker on the yeah. command line and then you can just yeah. go from there. Right. I will say the uh, Windows X thing is nice. Have you been using that? 
Windows key plus X pulls up this little sort of like quick admin menu thing. It's got like Whoa. power options installed, ask, apps, system, device manager. Oh. And then right at the bottom, it's got uh, a task manager, of course, uh, but terminal and admin terminal. So it makes yes. it really easy to just pop one of those up. You kept this from us all this whole time. The new Windows terminal has gotten even better. It it is slow to launch on my XPS. Like it's that it's like the the terminal launches and then again the Chrome kind of builds in and then the environment starts and it's it takes about as as long as it takes me to describe it and it's kind of painful but it's really nice to just have an Ubuntu terminal by default and that's been really great. So I tried to get this is dumb and I maybe it's possible if you keep looking into it but I tried to get Docker going inside Ubuntu in WSL2 because that's what I want. Why not just run in my Ubuntu environment? I'll just use Docker Compose, and I'll just run Docker containers inside WSL like I would on regular Linux, right? Mm, yeah. Well, uh, I I don't exactly know because I couldn't be bothered, but I think it's, you know, I got an error like uh, something about like I'm not running on PID1 or PID0. I can't remember what the error message was, but it's essentially because it's already a virtualized environment, Docker's not happy. And I think there is guides out there to get this working. But it was kind of a red flag because when I looked into Docker Desktop, I realized that's essentially executing in the WSL environment for me, and it's sort of the best way to go about it. So what the route <laughs> I was trying to take, I feel like was futile ultimately, but it was like the Linux user trying to solve it on Windows. And so once I just settled on Docker Desktop, I got that part, part working just fine, but I only started up one container. But I feel like I probably would use that more if I were to stick with Windows. Perhaps. Uh, all right. So then our very last objective, were you boys able to connect to a Linux system from the Windows system? I mean, I just did it right now. I connected to one of the servers here at the studio because, you yeah, know, um, with the Windows terminal and the nice little PowerShell environment and all that, like just use SSH right on the command line by default. Oh, yeah. Sure. That counts. SSH absolutely counts. I didn't even think about using SSH. Oh, I assume that's what you meant. <laughs> no, okay. just anyway, any method at all. Just any method. Yeah, but SSH is right there. Yeah. I mean, just like a Linux environment. That's nice. Yeah. That's so. surprisingly nice. What about you, Brent? Were you able to connect from Windows to a Linux machine? Yeah, I, I'm with you, Chris. I admit I didn't think of that very simple way. I, I, What I thought was, okay, well, I use Vorta and Borg to do backups on my laptop. Uh, I'm going to try to duplicate the same thing here in my Windows environment. Now, the recommended way of doing that, I guess they're working on a native solution to run Borg. Uh, it's a pretty okay. Linuxy solution. They're apparently working on it, but that's not the way it's possible. So what ended up happening was I was able to run Vorta within an Ubuntu uh, WSL uh, instance and nice. get the GUI up and everything. And I was able to do a backup using that. <laughs> that's neat. That works. Yeah, and it um, just in like the container, the WSL container just automatically gets the C drive and everything. So I like didn't even really have to do that much work in Vorta to get it working. It just kind of like just worked. That's okay. That's good to know. I think that's an interesting. You know, like my Windows admin skills are definitely not what they once were, and they yeah. were never very good. That became very apparent to me. Is that oh, this stuff has changed enough. Some um, of the old stuff's still there, for sure. Uh, yeah. And, like, there's lots of nice admin stuff from Windows, for sure, right? Obviously, it's deployed in huge environments, and you need those controls. Uh, but it's neat, as Brent is finding out right here, that, like, with WSL, it might not work for everything. But I can port, if I had to exist in Windows, I could port some of my Linux stuff to actually mm -hmm. get, get this stuff done in this environment. Yes. Unfortunately, the more I thought about it, the more I figured that I had just cheated and not actually 
achieve the objective. So I think I failed on two of our three challenges here. I don't know. I don't know. I think that works. I All think. Right. That I, oh, thanks, Chris. You're so sweet. I mean, it, it took him. It took him some time to make that file system access work as well as it does. That was uh, not initially so smooth. So I noticed, and this has been true for Windows forever, that by default, the Windows networking is a lot more protected. A lot more stuff is turned off by default. So I did the right thing and just turned everything on, all the auto discovery, all the DNS broadcasts, you know, <laughs> and I just let it go hog wild. And I opened up the what we used to call network neighborhood and just let it scan the whole network. Holy smokes, man. <laughs> it it finds in now it lists in network neighborhood web instances, uh, it, it, other MDNS stuff it discovers. It's not just your Samba shares anymore. Wow. Your Hughes bridge will show up in there. Home assistant will show up in there like. A lot of stuff. That some of your TV set top to box boxes will show up in network neighborhood, and um, I double click on the on the NAS here, the Linux NAS here in the studio, and I get an error message. Oh, you know, go figure. Right? I can open up I can open up the damn Hughes bridge, but I can't connect to the Samba server. So I realize, you know, what you really do is you don't need the GUI. So I just go into the location thing, put in the old whack whack one seventy two or one ninety two. <laughs> you know, give it the address <laughs> slash the file share I want. Hit enter. Boom, comes right up. And I'm moving files in and out, and I'm copying photos. It worked just like you'd expect. Now, I cheated a little bit in that I already had Samba set up, but I was pleasantly surprised how much more aware it is of your network in some ways, I suppose. You know, ultimately, I I also always, in the back of my mind, I'm like, are they logging this? Because it's really hard to trust this platform. There is that aspect of it, but that's, that's that's just the nature of Windows, I suppose. Um, I, I, but I, I had no problem doing that. I had no problem streaming videos and copying files around. I thought that all worked perfectly fine. So as far as the objectives go, I, I, I think I technically checked all the boxes there. Um, you know, it does feel like using this, as I like to say, there is in fact a strategy tax. It's clear throughout the entire operating system. I mean, the fact that the widgets that are basically their MSN website from a hundred years ago that they've just now widgetized incredible how the two primary commercial platforms some of their top features for their current os releases are widgets it's like i can't believe we're here again and they you know the the way the strategy tax works out is whatever division is in the bing division that runs those widgets and runs the msn.com homepage, they've got enough clout now that they managed to get the freaking start button moved and the widget button put now, just from a UI design, <laughs> it's so useless that it's clearly the result of some t- internal power struggle to push that those widgets and that on, those online services because everything's got to be online now. Yeah, it's funny. Like I don't mind the stuff being centered now. That that part, especially because you know, like I've had plenty Chrome, of Linux UIs. Chromebooks that like do that. that. Yeah. yeah, people have seen that by now. Right, but like they must know. They must have thought right. Like people will have it ingrained to go to this bottom left corner it and is, click. Iconic. Since Windows 95, the start menu has been the iconic branding for Windows. I mean, they licensed the Start Me Up song and <laughs> right. the entire thing. <laughs> it's an iconic aspect of the interface. It's, if you want to say, it's like one of their contributions to the standard commercial desktop space. And they've moved it in this result. Uh, and you can, I was pleased to see you can just, you can turn it off. And move it. And move it, yeah. You can put the start menu back. <laughs> yeah. Since, so. since widgets was nothing for me without a Microsoft account, I disabled that one right away, which you can do, which is great. I was way more excited than I should have been to discover that I can still right-click on the C drive, go to tools, and launch something that looks an awful lot like disk defrag. It's now <laughs> doing like SSD trimming. <laughs> sure. But it looks like this defrag, and I love that. <laughs> Check disk is way faster now, too, by the way. Holy crap. Good Lord. 
Um, and Windows Update, just as a side, they've really buried some of the driver stuff now. You like, you really got to dig in there. Like it had a plethora of driver updates that it recommended I install. But I would go, and I even though I turned on like the Microsoft up, it would say all oh, your updates are done. And then I would dig into the UI into the advanced section and expand this menu, and I'd see like, oh, you know, if you want to install a driver for your sound card, you can. I'm like, well, that would be great. <laughs> Which honestly, even after the driver was installed for the sound card, my sound still never worked until I went into the BIOS, toggled off the sound card in the BIOS, hit apply, toggled on the sound card, hit apply, and rebooted. <laughs> and then I came back and I had sound in Windows. It is funny how many times, like, the auto-discovery, the sort of, like, just make it work stuff has all gotten a lot better in Windows for sure, but it, I feel like you got to give it a couple of reboots to even be sure, like, has it, it's a sort of a round of, you know, it gets some hardware one time, and then you do it another time, and it gets the rest of it. I don't know. I'm never quite sure when it's actually done or when it's seen everything. I don't know if I couldn't finish my thought on the virtual desktops too, but I ultimately didn't use them, even though I really like their implementation for the most part. You got but, the swipe working and everything. Yeah, but I, what I discovered was that, and this is true for most desktops, but when the apps are up front and they're, they use a lot more CPU, like Element and Slack, 10 to 20%, they would, ha- they would hover between 10 and 20% CPU usage. And then if you minimize them, it drops to like zero, and it gets a little green leaf in the task manager that says, this app is saving energy. And it's like, well, okay, I guess I just have to keep... So what's the point of virtual desktops if I keep Windows open and it just slams my machine? And then like it, just the whole thing about just task manager still, it's good and bad. But it, ultimately, I just ultimately couldn't really use the virtual desktops because I wasn't on a computer powerful enough. But the, what the experience left me with was this thought of... This was better than I expected, and if I had proper hardware, I could even see myself considering using this as a work primary machine. Um, It's like visiting an old town that you spent a lot of time in as a kid, and maybe it's been 20, 30 years since you've been there, and you come back and there's lots of new buildings and new business and things have been painted. And where there was empty lots, they're now filled with really junk stores that are really flashy in your face trying to upsell you constantly – but when you walk around the place for a day or two, you can still find the old parts of the town that you knew growing up. And some of those bits still really hold up. Honestly, services.msc, you can still hit that in there. ncpa.cpl, you can still type that in the run box and bring up the network config, right? You can still get to the event viewer. Like, that stuff is there. The command line stuff's only gotten better. Yeah. But there's still parts of the town that probably should be condemned. And it really is feeling like we're multiple lacquer layers on top of, like, the control panel now. I can't believe Windows 11 has yet another control panel UI that sits on top of yet another control panel UI. Um, And they're doing a better job of integrating some of those older Windows configurations, and they try and try and try to prevent you from having to drop down to it. But I just – I can't believe one of the richest tech companies in the world can't solve that problem. And so I see some of those bits – some of the things around updating and using the system and some of the hoops you have to jump through that you just don't have to jump through with Linux, like the versions and the activations and the, all of the problems trying to get it installed on hardware, it just feels so out of date. And why, for God's sake, can't I just go buy Windows Pro under my Microsoft account and then just run Windows on whatever damn machine I want? And as long as my account is authorized, I can use the machine. Like, why is it still tied to hardware? And I'm sure maybe I could lift and move that license, but what is this, 1997? And I'm installing Red Hat 5.1? I mean, give me a break. Assign it to my account, and when I log in, I'm good to go. It doesn't have to be the only model. But, like, this idea that when I want to try it for a week, and maybe I really like it, maybe I convert, but this whole thing around activating and which versions and all that, it's such a damn turnoff. 
and it has been forever. The very first Linux system I deployed in production at a school district was because we couldn't install Windows 2000 because we couldn't get access to a CD key that late at night. The system was down. We had to fix the network. We had to get a server installed, and we were stuck at the stupid CD key. And we said, well, let's try this Debian. Debian doesn't need a CD key, and we can use Squid. And from that moment forward, my career trajectory and that entire network's trajectory changed. And I know it sounds like a simple thing, but it whole it it's essentially restricting access to thousands of categories of people and potential in, uh, enthusiasts who want to see what Microsoft's been cooking up and they want to try it out. So the, the, the all of the stupid chicken different product versions and the crap activation and the tying it to hardware and somehow and then the way they try to make it all work by somehow knowing that my Sputnik machine from 100 years ago had a Windows 7 license on there so they're activating it's creepy and then you combine it with the metrics and you combine it with all the tracking and all the strategy tax and it just ultimately ends up not being a system that I want to use but if they started taking care of just a couple of these really obvious problems they actually have a really good system now There's a lot of things I liked about Windows, and it's nice to have the app compatibility and then also have a terminal that has Arch and Ubuntu running at the same time. That's nice stuff. There's just those problems there, I think. But do you think you're going to stick with it on that machine and keep it? I mean, you got a nice setup. Yeah, I don't know that I'll be booting into it a ton. I might leave it around just for the odd thing that doesn't work in Wine. You know, occasionally that's useful, and it is nice to check in and play around. But I don't think it's quite at a place where I'm going to have as much fun with it. I think mm. I could see it maybe taking the place, like, I'd be a little torn right now, honestly, if I was, let's say I'm getting a new job and they don't offer Linux, but I could get a Mac or a Windows machine. Now, the Mac hardware might be what actually would sell me, especially with the, you know, the new era of chips, but assuming I could get, like, a, you know, taking that factor out, I, I might be torn to just take Windows, because I think I could get, I could make a lot work. What about you, Brent? You going to keep it on the framework any longer, or are you putting Nix back on there? Like, I stuck Nix in there. Yeah, I realized my approach, and I think this is just because of familiarity, but I realized my approach was just to install all of the things I love about Linux. So like I, you know, threw Kate on there and Firefox, of course, but that's not Linux specific. And so I was just kind of reproducing everything that I've done in Linux. And my last experience where I had a job at a, I guess, a local food co-op where they were like, this Linux thing you want to run? No, 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 no. Just use this ancient computer with Windows. I don't know. I was, uh, I did the same thing. I just like tried to recreate the environments that I wanted and I didn't hardly used any of the local, locally available software. And so I guess I'm just adding layers to running the software that I want to in this, in this way. So I, that doesn't really make any sense. I should just go straight to Linux. Just run Linux. Yeah, exactly. I think it is at a point now where like I expected to hate myself a lot more this week for having done this, you know, for having used windows and suffering through it, but I didn't suffer as much as I thought I would. So there's you know, a possibility there, but I mean, why? Collide.com slash unplugged. If you're in it or security, listen to this, because I think if this was around back in my day, I might not have left it. Because this problem where you're constantly battling things that get brought on by the end users through fished credentials or, you know, compromised software, or maybe they just didn't have any malware protection and they're on the Windows desktop and they go on the wrong website, like that kind of stuff constantly happening, constantly inundating IT. And 
honestly, it makes it hard to be compliant as well if you're in that particular sector. I was in banking and then I was in the medical sector and compliance was a big part of what we had to manage. And it's not the user's fault. It's inadequate tooling and inadequate preventative measures. And that's where Collide comes in. They are the solution to this problem. That's why I'm like, man, maybe I could have stuck around a little longer because not only do they help your users preemptively solve these problems before they connect to the network and they can send them messages in a DM or something like that to help walk them through and send them like a knowledge base article. So it, it takes some of that pressure off of IT, but it also lets you check the status of all your systems through one single dashboard, Windows, Linux, or Mac OS, one pane of glass. You can see if everything's compliant. You can run reports. It's really powerful. You got to go experience this firsthand. They've put up a little demo at collide.com unplugged. You go there, you support the show, and you see how they make this so seamless and how they actually can do it. It's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash unplugged. If you're in IT, you're in security, you're, this is an area of interest, you got to go check it out. Collide.com slash unplugged. We received a nice present in the mail from our podcast this week, but uh, it's not here in Canada. It's over there at the studio. Gents, you want to do an un- unboxing? Yes. Yes, I'm very excited about this. It arrived on Friday. Eric sent this in. Thank you, Eric. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Get the unboxing experience. Oh, nicely done, Wes. Oh, there's a, there's a note in here. Oh, all right. Do you want to read the note to us? Thank you, Jupiter Broadcasting. Hello, Chris. I know you've heard me say this before, but I'm so thankful for Jupiter Broadcasting, opening my eyes to the exciting possibilities of how far we can take open source software and how Linux would eventually bring immense value to both my career and my podcasting and Linux adventures. And if that wasn't enough, I also have to thank you for discovering Value for Value Podcasting 2.0. This Atari VCS was begging for a new home, and I dare say you and the JB crew are going to have a load of fun with it. One small bit of history, while I had a little time to play with the console itself, the gamepad included in this package was a huge part of my online hotshot racing adventures with Martin Wimpress and a merry band of racing enthusiasts. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) What a great way to use the VCS. And uh, speaking of open source, this letter was written with a completely open source stack, and the source is available on a GitHub repo. Uh, that stack is KDE Neon, our studio, publishing en- engine called Quarto, okay. and uh, powered okay. by R, of course. Of course. Eric, Neat. can I see that? Thank you, Eric. Oh, wow. This is... It's a beautiful, well-typeset letter. I mean, gosh. We could use this as a JB, uh, you know, standard... Header, this is nice. I think Thank we you, can Eric. go find the GitHub, so uh, there we go. Uh, using KDE Neon 2204. Thank you, Eric, from our podcast. All right, let's. Uh, so we have the VCS in the box. Now, listeners, you may remember, I backed the VCS when it first launched, and I never ended up receiving my unit. So this is the completion of a journey. Very excited, too, because it's going to be so awesome for the Notes PC project. Here we go. West Payne, what do we have? Oh, there it is. It's smaller than I expected. It's... Not much bigger than a shoebox, actually. It's a big <laughs> pair of shoes, but yeah, maybe a long. You got long feet over there. Yeah. Well, here you want to take. Here okay. you go. All right. Wow. It's, he even included the original packaging. How about that? How about that? It's a very retro-looking packaging too, and they have asteroids on the box inside. That's that's adorable. And also included here, we've got a wireless modern controller. I think two of those. <laughs> okay. One no one controller and one wireless classic joystick. <laughs> okay, yeah, wow. Okay, so here's the PC. I'll put the box down. PC is even smaller, obviously. He's even got the original plastic wrap. 
Can you believe this? This is as close as I was wow, ever going to get. Attention to detail here is wild. There it is. After all these years, <laughs> there it is. It's a nice looking box. It is. It is. Would really would look on, at home, you know, next to a TV in your living room or on or, your desk. Or in your garage as a notes PC with a dot matrix printer that I just ordered off of eBay. And, uh, you know, if I go out there and did a little gaming, too, that's not going to hurt anybody. So is it going to have like a launch and then also a wireless classic joystick? Yes, I think Those that's are the input exactly methods. It. Yeah, the dot matrix printer, that's <laughs> it. No mouse, nothing else. Chris, can wow. you describe what's in your hand for us for those of us who are not in the room? So the VCS is, it's almost like if you were to find a micro VCR, right? It's its just really small kind of pizza box style with rounded edges and then uh, orange back to it where it has Ethernet and HDMI out and the power connector. So all the ports are on the back of it, two USB, HDMI, Ethernet, and then a DC plug. And then it's got a USB port on the front too. Two sort of them. Of, oh, I tucked away controllers there. probably, right? Aha, uh-huh, sure. That makes sense. Um the size, though, is is what surprises me. It's, you know, it's about, I'd say it's a little bit larger than the Nux Skull Edition. There's the power That's the button. power button sound. That's the power button. That's really cool. Thank you very much, Eric, from the R Podcast. Go check out the R Podcast, everybody, if you're interested in the R language. He does great work over there. He's very dedicated. Uh, I have a follow-up thing, too. Olympia Mike sent us some goodies last week. Yeah. And he sent this USB speaker that we were talking about. And he sent me a correction after the show. Um, this is even cooler than we thought. So this is a USB speaker surface thing. You you plug it in and then you put it down on a surface and it turns that surface into the speaker. Whoa. So, so we could turn Brent into a speaker? Yeah, you need a skull. <laughs> Maybe if you and if he opens his mouth, it'll probably be really loud. <laughs> we'll try it at Linux Fest. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe that's how we'll have some podcasts playing. Thank you, everybody. Uh it is it is a special kind of thrill to get that VCS uh just because uh that's the one that got away. That's the one that got away, and uh, we will put it to good work. Hopefully have it set up in the next day or so. I'm really excited about that. If you want to send us an email, you can go over to linuxunplugged.com slash contact. You can always ask for the address to the studio there if you've got something you think we might be interested in, and uh, we always love hearing from you. Thank you, everybody, who does write into the show. And now it is time for Le Boost. Yes, it is. And Deleted came in as our baller this week with 135,801 sats using Fountain. And he has a Spaceball amount. So we are introducing the Spaceball Boost. So the combination is one, two, three, four, five. That's the stupidest combination I ever heard in my life. (laughs) Thank you very much, Deleted, for boosting in. Uh, We need more Spaceballs. We need more space balls in our life, and I got to rewatch space balls. I think the kids would like it too. Maybe I'll watch it on the flight to El Salvador. Cyber Gray boosts in with 123,456. <laughs> that's well the space balls. Well, that's, come also on, the, play it. that's also the space balls boost. What are the chances of that? All right. So the combination is one, two, three, four, five. That's the stupidest combination I ever heard in my life. <laughs> uh, I gotta watch Spaceballs this week Cyber Gray went on Digging all this mini PC love I started with a mini PC home lab Then moved to Proxmox But running Plex in a dedicated device Had me running back to a cheap used NUC mm. Plus, who can say no to the quick sync capability? Mm-hmm. By the way, someone from work Recognized the JB stickers on my water bottle And it made my week Great show guys P.S. This is a zip code boost, believe it or not just remove the one. 
All right. So that makes it uh, two, three, four, five, six, uh, which is a postal code in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Well, hello, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Cyber Gray. Nice to have you boosting in. That's great. Every now and then we get notes like, I was wearing my JB hoodie and somebody recognized me. It's like, you're in the club. Yeah. You get it. Let's talk about Linux really quick. That's great. John A. came in with 98,951 sats from Castomatic. <laughs> I was hoping to make the LUP plug today, but something came up, so I'm just sending these boosts instead. Oh, thank you, John A. You you get it. You know, like when I see those boosts from John, I saw it come in this morning as I was prepping the show, and it gave me like that little, literally a boost. I'm like, he gets it. You know, coming in the mumble room, that's some value for value. Sharing the show, that's value for value. And boosting in and sharing a little treasure is value for value. And John A., really appreciate you. Looking forward, I hope, right? He said he's coming to Linux Fest, I hope. I hope I know he's a little. Uh, that's fine. Let's hope. Got to come over here before the, you know, snow comes. Uh, Tech Noise comes in with 83,642 sats using Fountain. A zip code boost for the Windows episode. Somebody's been paying attention. My day job has me managing a lot of Windows, so I think I'm switching over from Linux. Any tips for the transition? Should I bother with Active Directory if I have a few systems? And by the way, it's a zip code boost there, Wes. Uh, 83642. Uh, that seems to be a postal code in Ada County, Idaho. A little neighbor, huh? Oh, a local. Fun. Yes. Well, maybe we'll see you at Linux Fest too, Tech Noise. Okay, so tips for the transition. Um, if you're coming from Linux, you're going to want to use the new Windows terminal because all the other terminals that I used on Windows were garbage. <laughs> so give that a go. Sounds like chocolatey. Yeah. That's a big go. Active Directory. That is a tricky one. I suppose if you had three or four Windows boxes. But you could also, if you want to, just use the Microsoft online account stuff. I mean, if you're going in all in Windows. That's true. I hear Ansible works well on Windows these days too. So that might be another option for some things. That could be a good one. You know, if you're already if you're already using Ansible for other things, that could but, be a good one. But, you know, Active Directory is pretty common, so I'd be surprised if you didn't end up with it. Mm-hmm. I, I would be tempted too, just because both Fedora and Ubuntu have pretty easy integration with Active Directory now. I've been able to do it in SUSE in the past. So, I, I mean... Technoise, try it and boost in. Let us know if it works because uh, I do like the idea of centralized login, and then you wouldn't have to bother with all the online account stuff either. Grounded Grid boosts in with 50,000 cents. Another listener suggested a Morse code clip for ham radio-related boosts. On the air with Morse code, we have our own sort of language. Think chat lingo, but from the 1800s. (laughs) My favorite farewell is C-U-A-G-N for see you again. With this in mind, I suggest the only farewell appropriate in the LUP community, C-U-N-S, for see you next Sunday. I'll send my hand-keyed recording through the contact form. Oh, I look forward to that. Uh, C-U-N-S. I don't know, but is that any easier than just saying see you next Sunday? Try it and find out. <laughs> okay, all right. VT52 came in with two, what are we calling these? Grandpa Duck boosts? For a total, McDucks. For a total of 44,444 sets. Things are looking up for old McDuck. And uh, they have a confession. I've never actually set up a hardware terminal. I felt a little guilty after suggesting something I've not personally run, so I acquired a wise WY55 <laughs> in glorious all the feels green for about $150. Shows up tomorrow. I'll let you know how it goes. Yes, please do. I'm looking up the specs of this thing right now. <sighs> That's a classic piece of hardware right there. 
He sent some extra info here. The RS-232 can go over Cat 5 or 6. Unassisted, you can supposedly get run lengths around 100 feet. But with Ooh. a booster, you can get up to one kilometer. Wow. <laughs> and uh, finally, they say it's uh, worth setting up Linux to expose a serial console, even if you don't have a terminal. I've used a USB null modem cable plugged into my phone to recover my headless home server after making some, let's say, ill-considered config changes. Hmm. That does sound like a nice backup. It does. You know, I where I would think maybe I would use that is maybe my Odroid at home that's in a booth with it's all sealed up. And if it crashes, I would, which it hasn't yet, but if it were to crash, I'd, I'd have to like fetch a keyboard over USB and an HDMI monitor of some kind and kind of have it all like awkwardly propped on the booth while mm-hmm. I'm trying to work on it. You know, a serial cable that you could run quite a ways back to your laptop where you could just sit comfortably does sound really nice. That's kind of a fun project idea, I think. Techolarian writes in with 24,522 sats coming in from Fountain. It's a zip boost. Listener for about eight years. This is my first time reaching out. I'd previously had pies, but was recently able to get some HP ProDesk 400 G5s from work, so I'm, I'm moving over to them. They have a ninth gen Intel, and they can be found for around $100 also. So... I'm probably not going to get a Pi 5. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty nice setup. I think the uh, foundation might be coming after us with all of our uh, talking people out of Pi 5. I know. Uh, so, yeah, 24522, postal code in Virginia. We got another Virginia check-in. This time it's uh, somewhere near Appomattox. Hello, Appomattox, Virginia. And thank you, Techlarian, for uh, boosting in. I, I feel like uh, we did get... Some negative takes on our Pi 5 coverage. Maybe we'll do a follow-up on that at some point. But until then, Fuzzy Mistborn boosts in with uh, 22,222 sets. This old duck still got it. Oh man, I'm feeling so embarrassed now. The AC adapter I gave Alex, and now Brent, was the one I had lying around when I shipped it out. And I didn't realize it made that horrible sound. The normal adapters are much smaller than that one and run about 15 bucks on Amazon or eBay. Here's some sets for Brent to go replace it all. Oh, Mistborn. That's really nice. Yeah, my main intention was not to make you feel bad. And it still works wonderfully, despite the slight, you know. Mistborn shouldn't mistake. Our intention was to rib Alex. (laughs) Yeah, actually. (laughs) Because, you know, he was traveling and he pulled out this one liter PC, which was very impressive, out of his bag. And I was like, you flew with this giant... You know, <laughs> relatively, you know, uh, I had not considered that he's part. A crafty and then he reached his hand into the bag again and pulled out this equally giant like uh, AC adapter. And it was just a funny it was a really uh, quite a funny scenario. So that's what I was laughing at. Yeah, he had to legit trade off, like probably didn't bring some things so he could fit that. Like you know? a steam deck. Oh, no. He yeah. did bring that. He did oh, he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Good, 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 good. Uh, Miss Bourne went on to say, uh. I will say, though, that I love the small micro-form factor PCs. I've standardized on some Dell Optiplex with 6th gen Intel CPUs, and they perform great as workstations. I've also used them to run Blue Iris for a time while I was moving things around in my setup. Just bought another on eBay for 45 bucks the other day. No, I don't have a problem. I swear. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you don't. I think you're on to something. Keep it up. And uh, thank you for the support, Fuzzy. We really appreciate it. Now, Marchie boosted in with 20,000 sats with Castomatic. I listened to JB on and off for a while, but Wes on TechSnap is what really converted me. I honestly think I never missed a minute since then, and I appreciate everything that all the hosts do, and Chris, of course you rule. However, Wes is my hero. Seriously. 
I know shows are at a premium, but if we could get Wes talking more in lot pre-shows, for instance, even just getting <laughs> yep. his balanced and expert take on Hacker News top stories, I'd love it. Thank you all. Oh, Marchie, so sweet. We all love Wes. Uh, we were joking earlier that maybe we'll have Wes call in on his, because a lot of times the pre-show kicks off while Wes is still driving up, because the commute can vary depending on, you know, traffic or whatever. And so, a lot of factors, it yeah, seems. Yeah, uh, how the morning goes and when we're starting the stream and all that. So um, we uh, joked maybe we'd have Wes call in, you know, and do the drive chat with us. But we agree, Margie, Wes is the best. 412 Linux comes in with 5,100 sets using Fountain. It says, greetings. On the Pi 5, I've owned every Pi, and I don't have the same enthusiasm for the Raspberry Pi 5. I'll buy it mainly for collecting purposes, I suppose. I believe the Pi shortage, or maybe better, the competition and lack of updated Pi storage options has left me meh overall on the Pi 5. I was really hoping for better storage options. We have multiple Beeling products, and they have been great. My kiddos have endless OS running on a B-Link and 9095. No issues. I recently purchased a Ryzen 7 version, and it's fantastic. It even has USB 4, which has been great with my eGPU. Oh, wow. How about that? I spent about 450 bucks. I got eight cores, 32 gigs of RAM, two terabytes of storage, and he's using an eGPU. He says it's a sleeper product. Also, not to self-promote, but go check out 412linux.io for more details. I think we will be. Yes. 412linux.io. Thank you very much, uh, 412 Linux. That's some great feedback. I had no idea that the Ryzen 7 version had USB 4. I mean, that with Ryzen is... I want to try that. That's huge. Yeah. Showmask got the Golden Dragon boost in with the row of ducks. Just a few more weeks to Minifest. Yes! Yes, looking forward to seeing the dragon. He's going to be bringing a miniature mascot with him, so we got that covered. It's, it's going to be great. Bear 454 boosted in with 5,000 sats. Hey, my current HP Color LaserJet is the best printer I've ever owned. It was preceded by a long line of perpetually disappointing inkjets, <laughs> yeah. which, <laughs> which never lipped up to the second best printer I've ever owned, which is a Gorilla slash Banana GX100. My dad bought it for our Timex Sinclair 1000 originally, it hammered out lists and school reports and dithered artwork for years. First with the Timex, then a TI-994A, a Commodore 128, and finally a TRS-80 Model 3. It wasn't put out of service until we got our first clone PC and a very disappointing inkjet printer. Bear sent me a version of this Matrix printer that he found on eBay. Oh, so I went ahead and pulled the trigger. I don't know if it's in full working condition. They said it's untested. But after the praise like that, how, you know, so I'm going to pair that with the VCS. It's going to be incredible. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it'll be a, we'll do a future episode on it. Thank you, Bear, for the boost. Gene Bean comes in with 7,000 sats using Castomatic. Just sending some support and trying to avoid the unfortunate total that results from sending three rows of ducks in an episode. Maybe the number... You got to watch that numerology sometimes. K-Mogged boosts in with 5,000 sats. First, always look for the neglected PCs for projects like this. I had a need for a small display PC I could use instead of switching to my personal machine while working. I had a eureka moment and dusted off my old Samsung Slate 7 PC. Hmm. This was from an era when they tried to make Windows 7 via tablet. <laughs> of course, I installed NixOS. Yes. 
on eBay. I saw a lot of 10 for 249 bucks, uh, or you can get one with a dock for less than 100 The dock fully functions. I don't know if the camera works, but this could work as a home assistant dashboard. Aha. My thoughts exactly came out when you said you could get a batch of them for 249 Even if only 8 out of the 10 or 7 out of the 10 worked, you could put them all over the place and all have them as home assistant dashboards. That's a great tip. Thank you for the boost. Mr. Pibb came in with a row of ducks. Thanks for the review. I'll pass and save the pie supply for someone else. The Beeling products, though, those look cool. We are get, we're going to get a note from Evan here pretty soon, I think. Dar Devlin's back. 16,500 sats, too, using Castomatic. I say no to no Nix OS challenge and absolutely no to a Windows challenge. Sorry, Whoops. Man. Oops, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. But he says, after you guys have talked, Chris specifically has talked about the corporate strategy tax so often, what about a challenge with no corporate tax November? No mention of Red Hat, Oracle, Seuss, Ubuntu, Canonical, or any corporations. Instead, just stick with Nick's Arch and maybe give Debian the credit it deserves with a proper review. And then he goes on to say, you guys could leave the news section exempt because that's going to be kind of hard right there, right? (laughs) But everywhere else in the episode... No corporate tax product allowed. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we delivered. You know, we had several people boost in. It takes a couple of suggestions before we take it seriously. We had a few people boost in, say you should do the Windows Challenge, and we, we went all in on it. I want to hear this idea a little more refined, I think, because it's not that out of step for us to do an episode on Nick's Archer, Debbie, and it's just we mix it in with everything else. Yeah. How else? How, how can we take it to the next level? Yeah. I'd like ideas on that. I'd be down for a... Uh, a whole month, though. <laughs> How do you even keep that interesting? I don't know. I don't Maybe know. we could do it around the holidays when we have, uh, you know, some yeah. themed episodes to fill true, in. True, true, true. Soltros boosts in with 10,000 sats. I have two x86 servers running Intel i7 2600s, 16 gigs of RAM each. One runs my home infrastructure, Nextcloud VMs, containers, etc. And the other runs Plex and Jellyfin as a backup. Got both for under 100 bucks. Way wow. better than the Pi 5 at this point. Yeah. How many of us are running Plex and Jellyfin at the same time? It's great that they can just work together like that. Is that is true. I just thought I was the weirdo, the one weirdo <laughs> out. But now I see Soltros is doing it too, and he's weird with me. I wonder if, are other people running both of them at the same time? Is this a thing multiple pre- people are doing? Let me know. Boost it and tell me. Uh, that is a really nice setup. An i7-2600 and 16 gigs of RAM is going to make a nice little Nextcloud box or something. You know, that's you know, all you really need. Or Plex and Jellyfin. Thank you, Soltros, for the boost. Thank you, everybody, for boosting in. That helps support this individual production. Your boosts use something called the splits technology. So Editor Drew gets a split. We each individually get a split. And some of the developers of the podcasting 2.0 apps out there, as well as the podcast index, get a split. So we're financing uh, a lot of people, and it's all just transparent right there in the RSS feed. So your support goes uh, far and wide, I guess, through the magic of splits. And this week we had 18 boosters, and we stacked 656,594 sats, which is really, really impressive. I was kind of concerned after the uh, performance we had last week that maybe we'd have some sustainability issues because that's one of the things we're watching with this experiment is, is it sustainable and we're growing it, and we're growing it right as, you know, the next ad season comes. And it's just really very exciting to watch this come together. We appreciate everybody who supports through Boosting. You can do that directly with a new podcast app. They're really slick, lots of new features. For me, it's a little bit like distro hopping. I try Podverse and Fountain, and I'm using PodFans right now. I'm, I'm podcast catcher hopping. 
but it's all the same standards, right? And then you can boost in directly. It's pretty fun. If you want to keep your app and our statistics suggest you might, then just get Albi, getalbi.com. You top that off over the Lightning Network. You can do it directly in the app or something like the Cash App or RoboSats or Strike. It's it's a standard. It's an open network. You get the sats into Albi. You go over to the podcast index, and you can use their website to boost in, and then you don't got to switch apps. It's not the most popular way, but it is an option. There are other ways to do it as well without having to switch apps, but that's a pretty easy one. We'll put links to all of this in the show notes. And thank you to everybody who streams out there as they listen. Those sats are coming in all the time. I open up the dashboard and I just doop, doop, doop. I see some batch of sats coming in and we really appreciate that. And we'll, we'll have more on that in the future. And we also want to take a moment and thank our members who support the ongoing production. So the boost, they're supporting this particular episode and that's extremely, extremely appreciated. But what the members are doing is giving us a foundation an ongoing foundation so we know this production cost is covered. We know this particular aspect is covered. We know the show can actually go out. The lights can stay on. That's massive because what it does, the combination of the two come together to make our audience the biggest customer. And that means from a business standpoint, from a motivation standpoint, from a what we spend our time on standpoint, it's the audience. And, you know, been doing this for almost 16, 17, 18 years. I don't want to do it any other way. I want to do it for the audience and by the audience. And I think when you look around what's going on with the media, especially like the coverage of Sam Altman and OpenAI, you, you really appreciate why, it, why independent tech media is extremely important. And the, spons- the, the sponsor-funded stuff isn't telling you the full story. Thank you, everybody out there who does that. And Wes, you brought in a last-minute pick. We were trying to debate what we should pick this week, and you got one. Yeah, it's not new, and probably most folks and you Windows users out there know about it, but uh, how, about good. The, how about the Sys Internals suite? Still solid as ever. Absolutely installed this. Um, you know, they have uh, now like a, a power tool that keeps your system awake, which you can invoke too. So if you're going to be running some tasks and you don't want the power management to kick in, one of the little tools you can install with their power toys and the Sys Internal stuff, both of which are great. We'll solve some of that. But the Sys internals really lets you dig in and get stuff that, like, maybe you're kind of used to from Linux. You can install it with chocolatey as well, so that's nice. So I got that going real quick. Um, Of course. uh, And then even though I hadn't signed into a Microsoft account, there was still a bunch of, like, OneDrive stuff in the background running in the Sys tray and, like, you know, taking over Explorer, which I didn't need. I wasn't going to sign into it. And uh, Sys internals in the, like, startup and features stuff you can control. So I just went in there and toggled it all off. That's a great pick. Sys internals and power toys combined together is probably like one of the extra installer options they might as well add. Add another index to that disk, boys, because you might as well make a pro install have that stuff on there. It's pretty good. I think it's mandatory for a Windows install. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And let us know your thoughts on the state of Windows. Did we miss something? Is there something we should have tried? Also, there's rumors that Windows 12 will be subscription only. Oh, no. Is this our last Windows (laughs) review ever? I don't know. I mean, I... I think there's room for a different way to buy and license Windows, but I I don't want to pay monthly. I'm going to have to start expensing it to the show, huh? Yeah, right. It's a tax write-off. <laughs> you tell us, too. Could could you see a, a future maybe? And I'm wondering if you guys, maybe we'll talk about this later in the post-show. Uh, could you see a future where there's a Windows subsystem for Linux? And what I mean by that is you have a standard Linux install in Ubuntu or a Fedora, and then Microsoft is packaging up either via Docker or some other method a subsystem for Windows that lets you run Windows app and build Windows apps because so much of what we, all of us, were taking advantage of was bringing our Linux stuff to Windows. And what Brent said earlier rings true for me. It's like, well, why not just run Linux? 
And I think more and more developers are going to be thinking that way. So why not just run Linux and then run the one or two Windows apps you actually need through a subsystem? And then Microsoft could begin deprioritizing the Windows system over time and focusing on the Windows subsystem for Linux. And it'd actually be properly named. You could still call it WSL. So it's a win-win for everybody. Let us know. Do you think I'm crazy? Boost in or send us an email. We'd like to know your thoughts. And we're also looking forward to seeing everybody at Linux Fest Northwest. That, of course, is coming up really, really soon. And you can always join us live. We do the show on Sundays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Last but not least, links to what we talked about are at linuxunplugged.com slash 531. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode. We'll see you next Sunday. All right, so do you think I'm crazy, or could there one day be a Microsoft piece of software made by Microsoft, maybe it's even open source up on GitHub, it's a package they distribute or it's a container, and you put it on certain Linux distributions, and you can just run Windows apps. So this is almost like their own version of Wine, like a, like a yes. Windows environment that can run on top of the Linux kernel. But maybe it goes as far as... They submit a few upstream patches to the kernel, to Linux, to make this work real smooth. It does make me think of the sort of the audience theories that have been going for a while of like, what, yes. if, you know, what if Windows was pivoted to a Linux base? They dropped their own custom kernel, but they kept kind of the top layer. See, I'm thinking the next version of that theory. I'm, I'm not picturing the Windows desktop environment on top of like a Debian base or whatever. Mm. I just don't think they're going to do that. It's too much of them shipping GPL software. But I could see them releasing, like they do VS Code, like they do a bunch of other stuff for Linux. Like Rails UBI, but like a, yeah. a Windows version? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. And with a more desktop focus, you could actually run desktop applications and it would, you know, because they've done a lot of the plumbing for WSL2, so you can run Linux GUI applications. It's kind of like a reverse of that work. I mean, no, I don't think this is going to happen, but uh, I would love for <laughs> it to. And I would, I would sure as heck try it and probably keep it around. You almost had him there. I think my biggest question would be, what would you run? Like, you could argue VS Code, but that already, you know, that works fine. And so where would you go? Games? Well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it could we be a game already got that Yeah, solved. you already got that with Proton. But, and that's but a better it solution. Might, it, but it might meet some edge case. Could if be it more had good complete. performance. Yeah. yeah. Or like for anti-cheat stuff, maybe it still wouldn't work, but would it have more of a chance? I think that's the question to the audience. What would you run?